Welcome to Screwed Up Moments, the podcast where it's okay to fail and it's okay to try again. I'm your host, Danny. Hey listeners, welcome back to the Screwed Up Moments podcast. As you can probably notice, we are not in the studio at the moment. And the reason for that is that for the first time, we are going to do an on-location recording. And so with that, I thought, you know, maybe we could do just, we could record just a little bit of extra B-roll just to give a little more insight into the production process. And so, yeah, in lieu of your standard introduction, I'm bringing you guys along with our recording. Hope that isn't too weird. Anyway, with that out of the way, this episode is going to be another organizational feature with a group known as Glyph. They operate in the education space where they aim to provide holistic programs to students and youth who are marginalized and perhaps don't have the same opportunities to excel as their relatively more privileged peers. And yeah, I love the work that these guys are doing. I think it is very important and worth discussing. And the guest that I'm interviewing, her name is Suhui. She has a pretty interesting story to tell herself. So, you know, without further ado, I've got my mask on. <laughs> I'm in the car, all my gear is with me, and yeah, let's head out to do this interview. In case anyone was wondering, whenever I go out to, uh, you know, record a guest for Screwed Up Moments, right? I always carry this <laughs> duffel bag with me that I call my gig bag, so that you know I can uh, ensure that we can get the best possible sound. And in this bag includes things like a pair of microphones, uh, microphone stands, hot filters, XLR cables, and even a set of screwdrivers, just in case the mic stand holder comes loose which, believe it or not, happens more often than I would like. So yeah, recording and producing this show does take quite some effort, but in return, of course, I get the opportunity and you know, it's, it's, it really is a privilege uh, to listen to my guests share their incredible stories. And even to this day, I sometimes feel so lucky that they're willing to share and open up with me on their screwed up moments. I mean, if you've been listening all this while, you would know that some of the stories were really, really tragic and devastating. And, you know, it can be extremely difficult to put yourself in that vulnerable position to share and relive those moments. And I almost forgot to mention, but please do let us know what you think about these uh, organizational feature episodes. I know they're a little bit different from the usual, but I thought it'd be good to get a different perspective from time to time and to focus on positive stories rather than just the explicit screwed up moments. Yeah, so anyway, we're almost at our destination and I guess I'll get back to you guys once we're here. Hey. Hello, hello. Hi. To remove my shoes, is it? Yeah. Okay. Okay. 
Okay. Will this be okay? Or... I think so. Wait, let me try. Okay. okay. I'll leave you. I'll use the Okay, sure, sure, sure. After exchanging pleasantries, Suhui brings me to the room where we are going to have the interview. Except that it's not really a quote-unquote interview room per se. It's small and bare, there's a small pile of children's toys in the corner, and right in the middle is what I presume to be the centerpiece, a miniature kids table. Yeah, this is already interesting. But anyway, the show has to go on, and so I start setting up the equipment, testing the microphones and all of that stuff, and in about five minutes, we are just about ready to begin. Okay, so to start with, right, um, mm. for the sake of formality, could you please just say a line with your name and your role at Glyph? So right. something like, uh, hi, my name is Suwei and I'm the senior lead at Glyph. Something exactly. Like that. <laughs> Oh yeah, so, you, can, you can just say that, yeah. Okay. Hi, I'm Suhui. Um, I'm the senior lead here at Glyph. Okay, great. <laughs> so, um, first things first, right? Mm. Can you please tell us more about the organization that you work for, Glyph? Sure. What does it aim to do and how does it go about doing it? Sure. So, Glyph is a social enterprise. We started this about three years back. Previously, I guess just to backtrack, even three years before, we funded the food and education programs in mm -hmm. the slum areas in Southeast Asia. That was a very foundation work that we did and it helped build our experience in what we are doing here today in Singapore. Mm. Um, long story short, our funds dried up. So when we brought the efforts back to Singapore, we realized that we wanted something a lot more sustainable. Mm. And that's when we launched a couple of um, projects whereby we funded the food and education programs um, in Singapore. So we tried out a couple of things over the first few months. And then eventually we realized that we wanted to focus on non-academic based programs. If you're a little lost as to what exactly Glyph is supposed to be, you're not alone. When I was trying to do research for this episode, I think I stumbled across like three or four separate project websites or business ideas tied into the Glyph brand, including the charity model that Suhui mentioned earlier. But for the sake of this interview, I think we can just focus on their current main segment called Glyph Community. So Glyph, I guess, to the public, we provide programs for kids from the public rental flats in Singapore, as well as other lower-income families who might stay in other areas. And our goal is so that these kids, they have opportunities beyond school, right? Mm. They are able, we are able to kind of bridge the opportunity gap. And on top of that, level the playing field. I think that's something really important uh, because we believe that kids, you know, they need to experience things to be able to grow and not just do well in school. So the mission statement is pretty clear. Glyph wants to help children from lower-income families bridge the opportunity gap against their more well-to-do peers. And they do this by running programs and workshops that these children can attend on the weekends. We are like a weekend home for, for these children. Every Saturday and Sunday, they're always very happy to be here. Or at least that's what I hope. <laughs> they're happy to be here. Um, we do things like sports, we do arts, we do tech-based programs. So Glyph is always trying to target inequality, right? In many different sense. Um, right now, Glyph, we're trying to target more in terms of education. So leveling up the playing field. Right. So that these children, they have that same opportunity which peers from wealthier backgrounds or slightly better backgrounds would have. And I think what's interesting to note as well is that Glyph Community is not operated using the same charity model as before. 
for us, having spoken to a lot of charities out there, a lot of non-profits, we've realised that we didn't want to perpetuate the poverty cycle. That was something I wanted to do, you know, I really wanted to go into the social space, but not really to a charity because I don't believe in free things, you know. If mm. I mean, okay, maybe something that most um, uni grads would be able to relate to is when you go for a career fair, right, then you'll be collecting all these goodie bags from all these different companies and then yeah. you end up with like 10 goodie bags with so many leaflets and so many free pens, which you don't actually use and it really devalues whatever we are giving to them when we are giving it for free Okay, first of all, I still do use a bunch of free stuff that I've gotten over the years from career fairs or company events. So her analogy, mm, I'm kind of on the fence about it, but maybe that's just me. Aside from that, what I'm really curious about is the idea of charging for their programs. I mean, I get that they want to have a more sustainable business model and all, but isn't their goal to help reduce inequality? How are they supposed to do that when they're charging the lower income families? Won't that be the same as a wealthier family spending on fancy extracurricular activities for their kids? What if they can't even afford the programs? Let's see what Suhui has to say about that. And more than that, when we charge them, they feel empowered, you see, when they are able to pay for their child's education. Because truth to be told, if you are coming from a lower income family, a lot of things, thankfully, are given to you. And so we, we don't want to sort of get them into that mindset whereby whenever I need help all I have to reach out I will be able to get something for free and more than that good work has to be sustainable what's the point of doing a financial literacy program for one year and yeah. having it to stop next year and then the kids won't benefit from it after that so if, if the families who are able to benefit from this program are able to provide um, their kids with this opportunity they right. are able to pay for it at a subsidised rate of course then we are able to continue running it and that we wouldn't be 100% dependent on volunteers because you know volunteers say they, they want to come they'll come but of course if today they don't come you can't blame them as well because they're volunteers Yeah. right so I, I think that wasn't that model that, that really stuck with us and that's why we decided to be more like a social enterprise right? right to make it with very strong business fundamentals and then of course to maximise the social impact that we have on the ground yeah. So I'm curious about how, you know, you don't want to give things for free because yep. it, it kind of sounds to me like when you give things for free, people will take it for granted. Yeah. Would this even apply to people who are really in need of these items as well? Fair enough. It I, seems <laughs> a little bit counterintuitive. Was this something sure. that you guys observed? Yes, I, I think absolutely. Um, I mean, for myself, because I've gone for mission trips and mm. all, I realised that the poverty landscape the world sees it's very different from the poverty landscape in Singapore right mm-hmm. I mean we, we do acknowledge that there there is um, families from lower income background and with that right that's when we realise that these families actually have purchasing power it's not that they have no money it's financial mismanagement la. and we wanted them to sort of make that conscious decision to spend $10 a month for their kids $10 a month? I can't even buy you an entree at a restaurant. Surely this is too good to be true, right? Apart from the programs that my team is doing an excellent job on, I, I think more, more importantly, it's really the dream, right? That your kids will be able to do well in life as much as kids from other backgrounds. I think that's so, so important. Right. Today, today, you know, if a kid from a wealthier background will have opportunities to learn things like, example, um, coding and programming, right, what right, more right. so your child, right? right. I mean, so, so I guess when I'm trying to convince a parent, um, it's not really about selling the program itself. I think that kind of 
speaks for itself, but more so why your kid has to join us instead of, example, go to a family service centre and join a free program. You know, I do acknowledge that there is good in that. But when you come here, the whole community is so together, you know, it's a mm-hmm. shared responsibility. It's very different from when you go for a free program, but it's not really a, sh- a shared <laughs> responsibility. You know, I mean, even for ourselves, when we when we sign up for like free networking sessions and right, all, sometimes right, we don't right, turn right, up, right. but it doesn't really matter. And I think when there's that shared responsibility, these families actually feel a lot more empowered. So our community is a lot more stronger and you want to be part of that community, a community where they want to fight for their future. We call them the underdogs because of course they are from slightly, you know, less privileged backgrounds, but they want to do well. They are even hungrier than families from wealthier backgrounds. And I guess that's where you want to see your kids with, right? You want to make sure that your kids are, are gelling well with, with the right people and all. And that's what Glee provides as well. The right opportunities, the right people to open the right doors in the future. I think if you strip away the cost and the programs and the extracurricular activities, the beating heart of Glyph is this very idea of the community of underdogs. While I may have doubts that their programs can rival others that are more expensive or more quote-unquote prestigious in terms of academic quality and opportunities, I am more assured, and this is only going by Suhui's impassioned pleas, that they will indeed fight for the future together. Yeah, I guess it's really the right people as well. Mm. Um, like for us, we don't call them teachers, so the kokos and zetes, that's what we call them. Mm. And that's so much more important than just sending your kid for a violin class, right? Mm. The these kokos and zetes, they're not only just teaching them the skills, but also having the heart to mentor them. A lot of my teachers or these kokos and zetes, they go above and beyond just teaching them origami or teaching them mountain biking. They actually play with the kids, you know. For the youth itself, they'll play like Call of Duty together. Mm. They'll go online together. I think that's the difference, right? You're not going to expect your violin teacher to be playing Call of Duty <laughs> with your son. It's not. It's probably not going to happen. I mean, I'm sure there would be. But these are people who are really passionate. These are people who came from that same background as well. And that's so important. They know how difficult it is. And more so, how important is it to be mentored? especially when they are at that phase, you know, in secondary school. I yeah, think we've yeah. all been through that as yeah. well. <laughs> that rebellious phase, that tough phase, that we guide them through this whole process and that they will come out better. Okay, so at this point, I think we've gotten a better understanding of Glyph and what they do. In the later part of the episode, Sihui will be sharing some examples of their on-the-ground work and the kind of real impact that they're creating. But before we get to that, I want to know more about the kind of people who sign up to be the kokos and jiejies that make up the beating heart of the glyph community. For some reason, I have this sneaking suspicion that they're not going to be your typical Singaporean university graduate. The starting point was really when I went for my first mission trip. That was my first ever sort of um, groundwork, actually, when I was in SEC 2 back then. So, so they were about 14, 15 years old. Yeah, oh gosh. There. Yeah. And we went to the slum areas in Cambodia and Siem Reap, mm. as well as Phnom Penh. Mm. We went there to cook meals for, for the kids over there. We went there to play with the kids. It was a one-day thing, so we travelled from village to village, right? So that's a yearly affair, which my school does. What I observed was that, yes, these kids, they are far less than us. You know, they don't have computers. They don't have actual beds to sleep on. And then I have friends around me who they just, you know, they grabbed a kid and then they took a photo and then they, they dropped. Yep, that's yeah. it. Yeah. 
that's when it really struck me, right? We we always think that we are there to help these kids and all. And I think on top of that, there wasn't a lot of meaning to it. At the end of the day, when I asked my friend, like, hey, Rachel, you know you know what's his name or not? They say, huh? How you know, Sia? They look the same. <laughs> wow. I mean, to me, it's like, what the heck? <laughs> yeah, so I think these were instances whereby I realized that probably this is not what I want um, good work to be. I mean, that's when I was really interested. I mean, I did volunteer in a couple of um, charities here and there. And yeah, I guess fast forward to when I was in uni year one. So I went to uni and did one year in FASS. And then after that, I took an internship here at Glyph. So Glyph back then was really different, you know. It's not like we're always actively running activities. It was more like um, Sean just getting uh, one or two interns. Sean being the founder, right? Yep, correct. Him coming in to to get, get a couple of interns to run his initiatives. And that's when I came in. And then we decided to run like a food program first, like what I mentioned, and then an education program. And then uh, I think over Taipeng, <laughs> we were talking about it. So we were saying that, hey, why don't we do this like $10 a month? Initially, it was supposed to be a tuition program. So right, these families, right. they pay $10 a month, they come for tuition. Once a month, we, if they have full attendance, we will actually bring them for an outing. Right. So be it a trip to Kitsania or, or I don't know, bring them out to Sentosa just to have fun, a financial okay. literacy class and things like this. So you were there at the outset of this $10 program thing? La. Correct, correct. And who else was, was part of that team? Was it just you and, and Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that was it. <laughs> I mean, we did, have had, we did have interns here and there coming in and okay. going out. But I, th- I think for the most part, it was just us. So we, we got a couple of tuition sponsors and everything. Right, right, we, right. We went out, we did our first roadshow, we got kids to sign up. Then long story short, the tuition didn't really happen. Lah. So we decided, hey, you know, since you all pay $10 a month, why don't you just come and have fun, right? Mm. So we did Kidzania, we did a trip to the fire engine. Oh dear, the first trip was a trip to the fire station. <laughs> oh my goodness. So that was so memorable because I was so anxious. And that so was, this uh, is the very first program? The, yeah, the very first activity. Activity so that you guys if, did, okay. if anyone has gone for this um, fire station trip, those are really OGs. <laughs> <laughs> so it was very, it was just a one hour tour just to meet the families um, and all. So yeah, we met the families for okay. the first time. Okay. And yeah, we did, we did that fire station Thing la. Yeah. So how many how many families uh, came down? Oh, I think about twenty ish. Yeah, and we even provided breakfast courtesy of Sean. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that was a very good first run, right? And okay. then yeah, the next weekend we did Kidzania, which was we have 40, 40 families. Like, can you imagine wow. forty families, a bunch of crazy kids, and just <laughs> a couple of volunteers which I have not trained up yet. <laughs> Goodness, I think that was the first few times. So it was a lot of groundwork, you know. And then by that time, we are doing we were we were doing door knocking and road shows every night. So then when it came a point where I was supposed to go back to school, right? I realized I enjoyed myself so much, and I think more than that, I didn't really want to go back to school. I didn't see any any meaning to being in school, and right. and I think that's something that I always ask myself. If I really enjoy it, I'm just gonna give my hundred percent. So I thought, okay, so. Um, <laughs> I I did a leave of absence for one year. Now, doing an internship and discovering a passion in and of itself isn't really that uncommon or too big of a deal. Neither is taking a leave of absence to pursue said passion. People take gap years and sabbaticals all the time, right? You go and spend a year really developing your interests and then you go back to finishing that degree or what have you. But what is different in Suhui's case is how this leave of absence played out. 
So I didn't go to school for one year and then we, we were just continuing Glyph and all. It was so exciting, you know, every day was like a new challenge. At 20 years old, that was so fun, you know. I mean, I had a lot of friends who, they, they didn't really understand the value of what I was doing. They right. were, because I think back then, I guess as an intern, I was paid 300. So to me, it didn't really matter. La. But to my friends, they were like, huh, crazy, you work seven days a week, you start work at 10.30, then you do work all the way up to 9.30. Then they calculated. So apparently I earned like, maybe like seven cents an hour or something. Then they were like, <laughs> <laughs> why are you doing this <laughs> no so but then to me I, I struggle it off for, for me it's if you're not with me you know I, I'm not gonna deal with you so right. I mean yeah so I guess I needed people who were supportive with me together and so yeah la, I mean and, and what did your what did your parents think about oh goodness they, they thought I was crazy <laughs> So this is when you you told them that hey I want to do a one year leave yeah, of so absence. Yeah, so I told them I told them I'll do a, a leave of absence. To... Okay, so yeah, fast forward one year later. So then I have to make a decision again after one year right. whether I'm gonna go back to school. Right. And that's when I had a huge argument with the office of admission because I told them if I want to come back, you're gonna give me the subsidy because they told me that um this leave of absence will be counted to my years of studies or something. Like that. So thankfully I overextended it. Right. So when you overextend it as a Singaporean, they wouldn't they they won't give you that additional the educational um, subsidy again. something like that yeah. so I thought crap you know then there was another reason why I didn't want to go back I was like I'm not going to pay this extra fees crazy uh. it was 120% and 150% more I, I wasn't ready for that uh. and then I think more than that Glyph has really stuck in me So actually, at the start, I didn't tell my parents. <laughs> told my dad like, oh, it's okay, I can extend my leave of absence. Wow, <laughs> shit. <laughs> then it came to a point where, because I was on I was on student loan, right? So it came to a point that we received a letter from the bank asking us to pay up. <laughs> because oh, technically, no. yeah, technically, if you leave school early, you have to pay up whatever study loan you had. Lah. So I was like, shit. Oh no. I did not think of it, but yeah, I mean, we paid it off, thankfully. Okay. Yeah, so, I mean, <laughs> was slightly traumatic but yeah I mean we paid it off everything's okay so yeah I, I mean I left school and then I'm still here so even during Chinese New Year it's a very awkward affair because yeah. all of them know that I, I reached uni I mean I was the only one that reached uni back then la. Right. so they were like oh okay like you got to uni then they, all of them I was like oh yeah I'm, I'm still on leave of absence la. <laughs> <laughs> but cannot be then the next year they meet me I tell them the same thing then they realise that I probably left school already so, so I think just earlier this year so it was yeah. your dad that found out first I yeah I mean I can't really remember chronologically right, right, right. but eventually they just all found out. So so I imagine <laughs> so I imagine like between your dad and your mom your dad has the sort of the tamer reaction he's like the, hey you you really left that, that kind of reaction <laughs> whereas whereas I imagine your mom would be like hey, you sell <laughs> I think it was the the other way. Oh okay. Yeah my mom was my mom. I mean, growing up, I was just really quite independent on okay. my own. So I made okay. a lot of decisions on my own. Uh, so yeah, I think for my parents, they were like, huh, you cannot like that. Ah. Uh, okay. But it wasn't like a, I'm going to kill you. But maybe secretly, they would think, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Probably have to check with my parents. But yeah, so it, was, it, it, it wasn't too much. But I, I knew that they weren't very supportive, right? right. But then I, I just, I still went ahead with it like, like a rebellious youth. <laughs> but I think, I think beyond that, it was really cause... I know this is where I want to be. Right. You know? And I always tell everyone, you know, I hope Glyph will be my, my first and last job. Yeah, so for my parents, they were like, they, they, they had to deal with it. So in the end, they just said like, oh, okay, la, like, you just do lah. Good lah, good lah. <laughs> <laughs> just do lah, just do lah. <laughs> then every time like, 
uh, like my relatives will be like, so you are still working at a charity? <laughs> every time Chinese New Year, I need to re-explain. I need to, I need to do a PowerPoint and then go through it at the start of every New Year to make sure that they are up to date. Okay, like firstly, I'm not a charity. Secondly, it's a social enterprise, and I work with children. Then they're like, oh, so you teacher la? Ah, okay la, okay, teacher la. I mean, whatever makes sense to them, you know, at this point. And it's even worse because, you know, so my family, I mean, glyph, right? It's not a very common word, G-L-Y-P-H. Right. So, at the start, my mom was like, huh, you did Ghibli ah? And I was like, oh my goodness. So we had so many variations of glyph. Glyph, glyph, Ghibli. Oh my goodness. Then I was like, oh gosh. So I, I think even up to today, my mom still says Ghibli, but I, I think <laughs> I'll just I'll just leave it leave it to her. Lah. In recent times in Singapore, much has been discussed and debated about the working attitudes of the millennial generation. Even just a few months ago in September, an online Facebook post attracted quite a bit of commotion when the poster, a co-founder at a local social enterprise, lamented about the attitudes of 12 local graduate job seekers that he had interviewed, saying that he was quote-unquote disappointed with their responses because none of them were hungry for a job. This co-founder claimed that the candidates were too demanding, asking for transport allowances, increased annual leave and salaries, strictly no working on weekends, etc., and that in general, they were not willing to be humble or to suffer for their jobs. In response, many younger Singaporeans eagerly defended the candidates, saying that they refused to settle for less and that their expectations are much greater because living standards and career opportunities are now greater as well. The thing is, having listened to Suhui's certainly unusual journey of leaving university to go work for Glyph, I am somewhat inclined to think that both sides of the debate are a little flawed. Unlike what the poster claimed, I'd argue that Suhui showed plenty of hunger while working for Glyph, and that she certainly wasn't too picky about the salary or the working hours either. But on the other hand, you also have to consider her decision to leave school, and how it doesn't really fall into the narrative of refusing to quote-unquote settle for less. Of course, hers is only a singular experience, and going by the anecdotes that she shared about her friends, a rather unrepresentative one at that. But be that as it may, I think Suhui's story is actually emblematic of a different kind of individual, one that is neither the soft and demanding millennial painted by the poster, nor the opportunistic hustler who is always reaching for that next milestone. Instead, this is the kind of individual that is willing to work hard for the things that they're truly passionate about and that would readily sacrifice safer options in pursuit of their purpose. In that sense, they are not motivated by job security nor the size of their salary per se, but more so the kind of work that they're doing and most importantly, the kind of impact that they're leaving behind. I think one of the more touching ones were uh, we were doing our meal deliveries because during this period we're not running any activities right, right so we right, are providing right. more relief efforts during this period right. so we met this family you know he, he used to come for our program but he stopped quite a while already um, his name is JJ right so for JJ and his parents um, his, his dad is um, he, he's mentally unfit mm. so he's unable to work um, he's on a two year long term MC 
Mum, on the other hand, is not local. So mum fell ill probably last year with ovarian cancer. Mm. So then she she went back to the Philippines, you know, and I guess over there, because medical is not as advanced, they told her to take some medicine, some herbs here and there. Mm. You know, long story short, she didn't get the medical treatment that she needed. When they came back to Singapore, you know, they saw a Singapore doctor, they actually asked her to go for an operation because there was a tumour in there. Mm. But then after that, the mum insisted that she didn't want. I think a very big part was cost. But we could see that the mum was getting weaker day by day. And then for the kid himself, JJ, right? He's a very lovable kid, but he's also, you know, affected by all these things as well. He knows knows that, you know, his mum is falling ill. He can't do anything about it. Even though he's really young, he's only eight years old. Mm. Right And then The dad Because he can't work um, he Yes he's under You know All the com care And all mm. But it's probably Not enough To get them through With all the medical bills Coming in So then the dad Actually collects food That is thrown out You know in 7-Eleven They have those Pre-packed food right, Where you can microwave it um, Once they reach The expiry date 7-Eleven usually Disposes them He goes and collects Them at the dumpster mm. He brings it back Home to eat Makes it hot For their family So usually The son just eats rice Typically like just rice A bit of meat If there's meat And then I think If I weren't on the ground You know I I wouldn't have heard Such stories And realised that Hey this is for real You know When I was visiting him He literally gave me A packet of expired milk But that's when I realised That hey people Are really living like this And I can't just go To my Go about my day to day life Knowing that I didn't help this family For me, helping them is not giving them free food, you know, it's beyond that. I want them to stand out on their own two feet. And same goes for the dad as well. He he does want his son to succeed, his mum as well, with whatever amount of time she has left. So yeah, I think these are these are reasons why, you know, we keep going. And of course, really touching um, moments as well with the kids. I think this happens like on a weekly basis when the kids, they come back, they tell you like, oh, they miss us, you know, I don't want to go to school anymore. Or even use themselves saying that, hey, thank, thank you so much for spending time with me. I think these are just little things that make us really enjoy our work. Gradually, I think as we become closer to these families especially during this period hearing their story and what's happening it gave us a lot of meaning to what we do Sadly, it does seem to be the case that a lot of families, they are not doing very well, especially during this period. So yeah, it is a common thing. I think there has been a lot of help given, but that sense of community, I think it's not there yet. For us, you know, we can reach out to all 1,000 families and call them up every day and make sure that they're doing all right. But then what about the other 1,000 which we are not calling? You know? mm-hmm. So it does happen. Um, I wouldn't say that. I mean, we do have families. You know, It's actually amazing. We have families coming from the rental flats who put up their hands and say that, how about I help his family with certain things? Mm. Yeah, you see, so again, it draws back to the value of neighborliness or, or, or community as well. And I think that is something that is very commendable, something that's commonly overlooked as well. But yeah, we know that I mean, a lot of families are not doing well during this period. But they are still very happy that, you know, their kids can get to talk to us. So I think that's something that we we really enjoy doing. La. Mm, that's wonderful. And um, speaking of that, right, these, you know, you know, I imagine that these moments when they happen or when you have these interactions with mm. these kids, right, they really resonate very deeply with you, especially with your sense of, you know, gives you a lot of purpose and sense to continue doing what you're doing here at Glyph. Yeah. But I was just wondering... Um, 
during the early stages, right, when mm-hmm. you were still in the sort of the building up phases of what Glyph was, was mm-hmm. like, was there ever a moment that after that, then you said, okay, I want to commit full time? Like, was there like that, that switch? I don't think it was jack up kind of thing. I think it was really more of, I, I found a lot of growth over here. I I enjoyed what I'm doing and I could put my name to it and say that, hey, I'm part of Building Glyph. And I think that's something that I'm really proud of and that's something that kept driving me to do what I do. Alright, and I guess so that brings the end to this episode of the Screwed Up Moments podcast. I hope you enjoyed the slightly different take on the format. And of course, much, much thanks to Suhui and Glyph for hosting us and sharing their story. If you'd like to know more about Glyph and what they're up to, I'll be leaving the links in the episode description as per usual. Do check them out. That being said, the Screwed Up Moments podcast is produced and edited by me, Danny Cordy, on behalf of Fable Productions. Episode music was sourced from Blue Dot Sessions and the theme song was composed by Rico Lo. If you enjoyed listening to the Screwed Up Moments podcast, you can help out the show by sharing it amongst your friends or by subscribing and leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Otherwise, if you have any questions, suggestions, feedback, or if you have your own Screwed Up Moments story to share, you can drop us a message through the email dkoordi at fableproductions.com. Once again, this has been your host, Danny, for the Screwed Up Moments podcast, reminding you that it is okay to fail and it is okay to try again. Thank you for listening. I'm off to get some lunch.